You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. I'm going to introduce um, our moderator for today. Uh, her name is Nancy Libin. Uh, Nancy, we, we looked around and we could not find anyone more perfectly qualified to moderate this panel. Uh, Nancy is the former um, Chief Privacy and Civil Liberties Officer for the Department of Justice. Um, she worked there for many years um, doing that type of work. Um, before that, she worked in the Senate side uh, for Senator, now Vice President Biden, um, on these very issues. Um, before that, she worked in kind of a public interest group um, setting, uh, the Center for Democracy and technology, where actually uh, Jim Dempsey works. Um, and now she's in private practice advising clients and corporate clients on, on some of these issues. So a really great breadth of experience to, to moderate this particular discussion. Um, with that, I think I have covered all of my housekeeping matters, um, with one exception. Um, at During the question and answer period, um, Nancy will ask you guys if you have any questions. Um, since this is on C-SPAN, we'd really appreciate it if you could come up to this particular microphone that's um, – hanging over the table here, and ask your question from there. Otherwise, uh, folks on C-SPAN won't be able to hear what you're saying. So uh, a little bit awkward, but if you could come up and, and, and ask the question from that uh, microphone, it would be most appreciated, and I'll leave it up to uh, Nancy. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, and, and thank you to the Congressional Internet Caucus for hosting this event. Um, as Tim said, before I introduce our panelists, as Tim said, the topic of the conversation today is the electronic Communications Privacy Act. I just wanted to provide a little bit of context for the discussion before we got before we get started. Um, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, or ECPA, uh, was passed in 1986. Uh, Congress passed ECPA in order to provide privacy protection for electronic communications. Uh, Congress uh, discovered in the 80s that. Uh, Technology had outpaced the privacy protection it had provided for voice communications when it passed the Wiretap Act in 1968. So in 1986, Congress uh, passed ECPA to extend those same protections to cover new forms of communication, in this case, uh, digital communications, electronic communications. Now here we are again, almost 30 years later, and changes in technology since 1986, have prompted Congress to take another look at ECBA to see whether and how it should be modernized to protect the privacy of communications and content that is sent and stored online in ways that were not possible 30 years ago. Um, and as you probably know, uh, several bills have been introduced in Congress uh, to uh, reform ECBA to do just that. So uh, looking forward to our discussion today, I'll introduce our three panelists, and I'll just, after I introduce them, I'll uh, explain what each one will start off discussing, and then we'll get into a, a more uh, free-flowing discussion. But um, to my left is Richard Downing, who's the Principal Deputy Chief of the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section at the Justice Department. It's also called CSIPS. CSIPS is the office that investigates and prosecutes computer crimes and advises the department on issues related to law enforcement's collection of electronic communications and the use of emerging technologies in criminal investigations. To Richard's left is Jim Dempsey, who's the vice president of public policy at the Center for Democracy and Technology, where he focuses on Internet privacy government surveillance, and national security issues. Jim is also a former counsel to the House 
Judiciary Subcommittee on Civil and Constitutional Rights, so he has spent time up here as well. Um, to Jim's left is Katie McAuliffe, who's the Federal Affairs Manager at Americans for Tax Reform, and she's also the Executive Director of Digital Liberty, where she focuses on telecom and technology issues, including ECPA reform. So I thought we'd start the discussion today with Richard, who is a terrific person to explain how law enforcement uses ECPA to obtain information necessary to investigate and prosecute crimes. We'll then move to Jim, who can talk about how ECPA was designed for communications technology as it existed in 1986, how that technology has changed since then, and why many argue that those changes have eroded the privacy protections that ECPA currently provides. And I'll look to Katie to talk about some of the different approaches to reform that we see in some of the bills that have been introduced. So with that, Richard. Great. Well, I want to thank... uh for the uh, invitation to come and speak with you today. I'm uh, very interested to uh, engage on this issue and very interested in your questions later. What I'd like to do to begin with is to give you a bit of a thought experiment. Uh, What I'm going to do right now is deputize all of you. You are now assistant sheriffs in a small town, and uh, you are sitting at the uh, intake desk, and in walks a woman who says that her daughter has given her an email that she received uh, that states basically that some kids that uh, she doesn't know uh, are going to be coming to her school in a shooting rampage sometime soon. So your job now as the intake officers decide how you're going to deal with this uh, very serious situation. And the answer, it turns out, is that you're going to need to get a bunch of information from providers to be able to figure out what's going on here. Uh, one thing you would probably want to do is to say, well, this email was sent from a particular email account. Who was the person logged into that email account at the time that this image was, uh, this message was sent? What was the internet protocol address, the IP address of the person, uh, person's computer as a way of figuring out who that individual is? You might also want to know, well, what other email accounts has that person been communicating with? Who else might be involved in this shooting? Uh, who else uh, might be supplying information or perhaps a gun for this individual? Another thing you might be interested in is what is the content of other emails in that account? How do we know this is a real thing and not a, a, a false threat? How do we can we figure out who is involved by looking at the text? Can we figure out what it is they're going to be doing? This is a core way that ECPA is involved in criminal investigations because it is the statute that controls the way that law enforcement officers obtain information from a provider in that kind of situation. And if you think for a moment, it's hard to think of a crime nowadays where this sort of evidence is not going to be relevant and important. So uh, your next week on the job, you get a report of a gang shooting, and you are now very interested in knowing who uh, might have been in the area around it? What text messages is a potential suspect sending? What was the content of those messages? Can you use any of this information to figure out who is involved? 
the next week on the job, you're an undercover officer, and you receive, uh, you download an image uh, of a child sexual exploitation that has been uploaded by the person who is uh, molesting the child next door. How are you going to figure out where that image came from? How are you going to figure out who that person is? How are you going to figure out who else that person's communicating with, and so on? The next week on the job, you receive a report that a major retailer has been hacked, and they've been uh, uh, stolen uh, from them has been 40 million credit card numbers. What are you going to do? How do you figure out where that hack came from? How are you going to figure out where the money went? Uh, and even you get a report of a missing child. Is it a runaway? Is it a kidnapping? Where's that child's phone right now? They had a phone on them when they were went missing. The provider may have information to be able to locate where that phone is and perhaps to be able to save that child. So these examples, um, what I want to impress upon you is really the breadth and importance of ECPA for law enforcement investigations. The statute controls the way that law enforcement officers are able to obtain electronic evidence stored at the provider. So we're not talking about searching people's homes. We're talking about information stored by Google or Verizon or Facebook. Um, and we're also talking about uh, the, uh, the broad scope of what's involved here. Sometimes it's involved is what's involved is the content of a communication, the body of an email, for example. Uh, sometimes what's involved is non-content information. It could be the to and froms on the email account or the IP address of the person who was logged in or even perhaps the cell tower nearby where uh, that person is because his phone was being used to communicate through that tower. To be clear, we're also talking about criminal investigations, of course, also civil investigatory matters that the government might be involved with. Because uh, when the SEC or when the Department of Justice is investigating, let's say, a, an environmental matter or a civil rights violation or various civil fraud matters, uh, this is the statute that controls access from those investigations as well. What we're not talking about, just to be clear too, is whatever uh, the NSA is doing, uh, anything to do with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, those authorities are different than ECPA, and uh, so I just want to make sure that we're focused on the right set of issues here. This is, doesn't have uh, anything to do with NSA's uh, alleged or uh, alleged bulk collection that's been going on. So. Um, you're the officer. How do you obtain that information? What's the standards and how does this work? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. If what uh, the investigation needs is the name and address on the account, so perhaps you've got the IP address, the Internet Protocol address of the computer that uh, sent the email uh, with the school threat, um, and you need to find out who's, where does that person live, you know, who's the name and address on the account, uh, then that is uh, required to be used, uh, ECPA requires that you use a subpoena to do that. And here, um, by subpoena, to be clear, various types of subpoenas, but you could imagine a prosecutor issuing uh, a subpoena on behalf of a grand jury in order to uh, require the disclosure of that information from the provider. Slightly more sensitive information might be the to and froms on the account. So now it's not just the person's home address, but you want to know who the person's been sending and receiving email from, perhaps to identify other people who are involved. 
uh, ECPA requires the use of a court order. Uh, so there the officer would go to the local prosecutor, present information to the prosecutor and convince him that it's necessary. The prosecutor would then prepare an application, go to the court, and present that evidence to the court to justify the uh, uh, the court to issue the subpoena, um, excuse me, the court order. I don't know what that is. Uh-uh. Yeah, why don't you tr- is that any better? So uh, the prosecutor would then take this information, prepare an application, go to the court, and uh, the judge would evaluate whether the standard has been met, which is a medium-level standard, and then if the standard has been met, issue the court, the uh, order to the provider. And finally, in most circumstances, if we are obtaining the content of those emails, uh, the statute requires that we obtain a search warrant, similar to the kind of warrant that would be used uh, to obtain access to someone's home or business. Uh, again, uh, there's an affidavit, a neutral magistrate um, reviews that and evaluates it before issuing it. What I want to just mention briefly here, too, is that you'll notice that there's a wide range of different kinds of process, and so I caution you when you hear the people refer to process as warrantless, uh, it conjures up the idea that uh, the officer can just walk in and do anything he wants because of warrantless, uh, no warrants required. Actually, there's a fairly careful and graduated uh, set of rules that are all laid out in the statute that require certain types of process other than a warrant in certain circumstances. I would also mention just briefly that um, for speaking on behalf of the department, we are uh, very concerned that we follow the rules, that we carefully weigh the situation with regard to um, privacy and the privacy invasions that that might be, uh, that are incurred as normal course of criminal investigations. And so uh, you know, we are very interested in making sure that the balance is correct and very interested in um, making sure that this statute works properly for the purposes that it is put, which is, uh, as as you can see, very critical to public safety, Um, very important in so many different kinds of criminal investigations that we uh, use to help protect the public from violent and other criminals uh, in the course of um, the the work of the Department and of Law Enforcement. So um, I'm now de-deputizing you. You can go back to your (laughs) regular jobs, and I would pass it on to Jim for uh, the next part of our talk. Thanks, Richard, and um, thanks to the uh, Congressional Internet Caucus for putting this on. Uh, Nancy uh, Libin, thanks for uh, moderating. Um, I wanted to uh, start by um, re-emphasizing a point that uh, Richard made, which is that um, The Electronic Communications Privacy Act is separate and distinct from the national security and foreign intelligence um, authorities of the government. So there's been a lot of uh, debate, obviously, in the past uh, nine months or so about uh, NSA, about uh, bulk telephony collection, about um, various programs that are conducted under uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. We have uh, two parallel sets of uh, rules. We have a comprehensive set of rules for collection of electronic uh, communications in the foreign intelligence and national security arena, and then a comprehensive set of rules that are different in some ways in the criminal 
uh, law enforcement and civil arena. And so we're focusing, as Richard said, uh, on that criminal justice and civil enforcement uh, and civil litigation context here. And that's what ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, uh, regulates. Ironically, in the way that we're going to be talking about today, the um, standards under ECPA are actually weaker than those under uh, FISA. Uh, The president has said and has emphasized uh, correctly that in order for the NSA to get access to the email of a person inside the United States, the NSA needs to get a warrant from a judge for domestic collection, for collection about anybody inside the United States, the NSA needs to get a warrant. Under ECPA, and this is the problem that we are pointing out, ECPA, as it is now written, says that government agencies do not need a warrant in the ordinary criminal cases of the kind that Richard has talked about and in other uh, non-national security cases. So if anything, what we're... People often think that the national security standards are more um, favorable to the government because of the unique uh, interest at stake on the national security side. In fact, here, the privacy protection standards are weaker uh, in the ordinary uh, run-of-the-mill criminal investigations. Now, it's hard for many of you to appreciate, I think, how far we've come in technology since 1986 when uh, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act was first enacted. In 1986, it was uh, what, I don't even know if people now know the term, it was a dial-up world. Uh, You used to dial in through a telephone line to your Internet service provider and download your email onto your laptop, at which point that email would be deleted from the server of CompuServe or AOL or any of the other uh, email and Internet service providers. Now, of course, fast forward to 2014, and we're in a world that's characterized by always-on technology, uh, ubiquitous, uh, broadband, uh, wireless, and the emergence of what we call the cloud, which is the remote storage of uh, information, not on your personal device, not on your laptop, not on your desktop, but with the third-party service provider where it's available uh, all the time, uh, backed up, uh, secure, um, and uh, available from any number of devices. A remarkable, remarkable um, development, which Congress did not anticipate in 1986. Even the people building the technology didn't anticipate it in 1986. All the emphasis was on pushing power to the laptop and creating more storage capacity locally. So the question is, how do we facilitate law enforcement investigations and access to all the kinds of information that Richard talked about, which is critical uh, to a whole range of criminal uh, investigations, including very, very serious matters, including matters where time is of the essence. How do we facilitate law enforcement access to that information while implementing and enforcing our traditional uh, rights? The Constitution, of course, in the Fourth Amendment, protects the right of the people against unreasonable searches and seizures in their persons, houses, pa- papers, 
and effects. And I think it's pretty clear that everybody would accept now that digital material is covered uh, by papers uh, in the the Constitution. But the problem that has plagued uh, policymakers, the courts, Congress, um, really for over 100 years has, what about data that leaves your possession, data that um, is delivered to a third party for processing or delivery? And we've seen, really for more than 100 years, an interplay between the courts and the Congress in trying to establish rules for how do you protect that data. Back in the 1870s, Congress, um, I mean, I'm sorry, back in the 1870s, the Supreme Court ruled that letters, when they leave your possession, when you hand them over to the Postal Service, a government agency, um, are protected by the Fourth Amendment, and the government needs a warrant to open postal mail. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court ruled that the voice of your telephone call as it passes over the wires and through the network of the telephone company is protected, and that the government needs a warrant issued by a judge in order to intercept that communication a warrant issued based on a finding of probable cause to believe that a crime is being committed, which is the constitutional standard. In 1986, as Nancy said in her introduction, it was unclear, well, what about wireless communications? And what about non-voice communications, data communications? And Congress uh, adopted ECPA. The courts were... Moving slowly on this issue, Congress said, we have this new technology. We need to create a a trust platform for these technologies to succeed. And Congress adopted ECPA in 1986 and said, voice over the wireless uh, network is protected and requires a warrant for the government to intercept, except in emergency cases, which are recognized, of course, under the Fourth, Fourth Amendment. And data, non-voice communication, Congress said, is protected as it moves through the network of the then-just-emerging Internet. What Congress didn't really anticipate, as I said, was what about data at rest? What about communications when they are stored, not locally, where we would all agree they are protected, but remotely? And that's where Congress just dropped the ball. Uh, didn't anticipate where the technology was going, and came up with a very complicated set of rules, the bottom line of which, though, is a lot of data content, just like the letter, the email, just like the telephone call, the voice, the text, the documents, stored with a third party. Congress said in ECPA, they should not be protected by the warrant requirement. They should be available to the government with a subpoena issued by a prosecutor or, um, in some cases, by uh, FBI or DEA in certain cases with no judicial approval and no finding of probable cause. And, obviously, technology has moved way beyond that, and we believe it is time to update ECPA to say that a warrant is necessary for the government to compel a third-party service provider to 
to disclose that content, again, except in emergency cases, except with the consent of the, of the customer and the other exceptions that you would normally have to the Fourth Amendment. In uh, 2010, uh, my organization, the Center for Democracy and Technology, put together a coalition of uh, companies, uh, trade associations, and public interest groups called Digital Due Process. We launched with uh, 30 members. We now have over 100 members. I have a sheet outside um, that lists all of the uh, current members and lists the principles for ECPA reform based on the proposition that the government should have access to data using a variety of instruments, including the subpoena for the less um, for the non-content data, but that to get the content, whether it's a telephone call, whether it's a letter in the Postal Service, whether it's an email in transit, whether it's a text in storage, whether it's a document stored with any of the uh, online services, the government should meet that constitutional standard. One Federal Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that ECPA is unconstitutional precisely because it does not require um, a warrant for access to stored content, our proposal would cure that constitutional defect, put ECPA back on a a sound constitutional basis. Uh, The pending bill in the House is uh, H.R. 1852, uh, introduced by uh, Representative Kevin Yoder and Representative Jared Polis, now has uh, 200 co-sponsors, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Katie McAuliffe of Americans for Tax Reform, one of the charter members of our Digital Due Process uh, Coalition, uh, to talk a little bit more about the the, the the pending legislation. And then I think we'll probably come back uh, for a second round to some of the uh, issues at stake here. And we can also talk a little bit later about things other than content. For example, um, cell phone tracking data, which is also covered somehow by ECPA, although Congress in 1986 didn't again anticipate cell phone tracking, didn't really fully anticipate where the wireless industry was going, never anticipated how ubiquitous it would be. Um, And uh, ECPA covers tracking data but does not require uh, a warrant for it. And again, we think that's another one where there should be a warrant But um, let me yield to Katie McAuliffe of ATR. Yes, Katie McAuliffe with Americans for Tax Reform Digital Liberty. I want to thank um, Richard and Jim for that great background there on electronic communications privacy form, kind of where we are and where we're going. Um, I want to – I'm probably going to reiterate a few things that they've said, maybe in different words, just because I've heard it takes hearing something seven times to actually remember it. So I think I've heard that seven times. Um, so when talking about this, there are a bunch of different aspects to ECPA. There is warrant for content. There's location tracking via cell phones. There's pen, trap, and trace. I'm leaving one out. Leaving it out. So we've got these four different principles, but the one that we want to focus on right now is warrant for content. So as Jim was describing, content that is held in your email in a third-party uh, service provider, content that's held in the cloud, content that's held by Facebook, content that is in your Google Docs, those kinds of 
content. And one of the things that's really interesting is that, like, on my phone here, depending on what button I hit and where my information is saved, actually determines how that information is protected. So if I save a photo to my phone storage, then it has warrant protection. But if I save a photo to my iCloud, it does not have warrant protection. So there's a that's a strange difference right there. And I think that's something to really think about the inconsistency there. And to think about papers that are in your file cabinet at home have warrant protection, but papers that you save um, in Google Docs do not. So that's one thing to really think about when you're talking about electronic communications privacy reform. Um, as mentioned, there are a bunch of different things that go into this topic, and Richard touched on a few of those, um, and so did Jim. So I want to start out with talking about some of the bills that are around. Um, Congressman Chaffetz has a bill that is fully focused on location tracking. It is a great bill, um, comprehensive, few things to work on, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on moving forward. Um, from my perspective right now, it's a very complicated issue to kind of try to get everything pulled together. Content is the first step in getting getting an education on how this kind of information affects our lives and affects our privacy. So that's a great bill to be watching. Um, one that Jim mentioned was the Yoderpolis bill in the House that has over 200 co-sponsors. Um, if you are not on that bill, you should take a look at it because it's got some great information. Um, if you have any questions, I'm happy to tell you about it. But their bill mostly covers warrant for content, and it mirrors the bill that's in the Senate um, sponsored by Senators Leahy and Senator Lee. So these are very similar, and basically what it lays out is that your email, stuff stored in a third party, shouldn't be treated differently than stuff stored in a file cabinet at your house, that a warrant should go to the service provider as well. And you can subpoena me. You can subpoena me to get my stuff. But you need a warrant to go to the third party. Um, so that would kind of clear that up and let me, as a user, have control over my data to decide what has privilege and what doesn't. And privilege meaning... Um, like, I'm not trying to share my doctor's notes or my love letters in an investigation, but anything relevant to the case, like, say, I did something fraudulent or something was wrong with my lobbying and someone's coming after me. That's the kind of stuff that would have to be turned over. Um, and, you know, being able to decide that privilege is very important. Uh, there's another bill that kind of combines both of these, the location aspect and the um, warrant for content, and that's sponsored by Representatives Lofgren and Poe, which is a good comprehensive overlook. But really what I want to focus on and what I think has the most steam and really shows that Americans – or shows what Americans want to see from Congress, they want to see from the administration, is that they care about privacy. Because, again, this is separate from NSA. This is not about foreign intelligence. This is about domestic investigations. And those domestic investigations are very important, and it's important that they work well, and it's important that companies are able to comply in a way that is consistent. And by having a warrant, they don't have to worry that they might be breaking a contract with their users, and they make sure that they're getting the police or the, um, the agency who's investigating everything that they need. And so that's all a very clear process. 
Um, some of the examples that Richard gave, um, things like child pornography or someone with an email that's talking about a plan, you know, those kinds of things are, um, there are emergency exceptions for that kind of content. So those things can be gotten to, um, and maybe Warren gone back to you afterwards, Jim, or? Not really, no. No. Okay. So the warrant, not necessarily getting a warrant afterwards, but there's an emergency exception for those types of cases. Um, in the instance of gang violence, that would be a criminal investigation, so you would need a warrant uh, moving forward on that. And um, hacked retailers, there are actually a lot of voluntary agreements out there for sharing information, and I'm quite sure that Target was more than willing to share information to solve their problem. And that's why a lot of retailers have actually joined in groups that are data sharing on possible threats to their security, which is something that they haven't done in the past and they're moving forward in that direction. And that can help curb um, a lot of these data breaches as well. So one of the things that also comes up, so we've talked about criminal, right? So these are criminal investigations. Criminal investigations, you need a warrant, you need a warrant, you need a warrant. And one of the ways that you build a case for criminal investigation is to know who sent what to whom at what time. And you can get that with a subpoena. You don't have to come to me. You can get that with a subpoena from the third-party service provider to build your case to get a warrant on the criminal side. On the civil side, um, as Jim was talking about the case in the Ninth Circuit, um, they were in civil investigations, which have a lower burden of proof. They were using a subpoena to get similar information that you might have to use a warrant for in a criminal investigation. So that is, it's kind of a break if you think about it. The more serious crimes and the less serious, as we've determined between criminal and civil, that's why they're separated out that way. So um, one of the things that's come up is civil investigative agencies have said if, you know, hey, you make these updates to ECPA as noted in Leahy Lee or Yoder Polis, then civil regulatory agencies like the SEC, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, EPA, FCC, FTC, OSHA, everybody has the ability to, um, they wouldn't have that ability anymore. So they've kind of asked for some kind of change or an amendment to give them some kind of warrant authority, which is very interesting because they have a lower standard of proof, but they would have the power of a warrant And they'd be able to do these investigations if an amendment like that were added to the already written legislation. But the other thing about civil agencies is that they share with criminal agencies. So a criminal agency would have had to get a warrant to do this particular work, but the civil investigative agency doesn't have to. And they share that information. So in that way, you're circumventing the legal structure that's put in place to protect our Fourth Amendment rights. So it's very important that that Yoderpolis, that Leahy Lee pass as they are without amendment from my perspective at Americans for Tax Reform because that ensures protections to Fourth Amendment rights and it also um, still ensures that law enforcement can do their job because in the civil investigations, they can issue preservation orders to third-party service providers and they can subpoena me because the question is, is like, well, what if, what if Katie dumps all of her emails that we need for this investigation? Well, it doesn't matter because you've put a preservation order with the third-party service provider. They can compare what I've given them to the metadata, the to and from timestamps, 
with the service provider and say, you know, hey, we know that you've been talking to this person. This is a, a colleague or someone who, you know, we know you have a uh, criminal or civil violation type relationship with. And we want to see this email. The thing is, that's so much work. It's so much work to go through all the paper. And it's so hard and it's so tedious. And the Fourth Amendment is such a bummer. But the Fourth Amendment is really important. So it needs to be protected. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, I think I want to pick up on what Katie was just talking and also give um, Richard a a chance to talk a little bit about the issue of a civil investigation and and what it would mean to give out to require a warrant for content, what that would mean for uh, civil agencies conducting investigations. And first, if either Jim or Katie could talk a bit about possible workarounds, I understand that that could be a sticking point to legislation that requires a warrant. Uh, What are some of the, you mentioned a, a preservation order, but what are some of the other possible workarounds um, for the SEC and other agencies? Well, the SEC and other regulatory agencies have subpoena power, and um, traditionally they have served their subpoenas on the targets of their investigations or on other people who may be the senders or receivers of uh, letters or email or uh, documents that may be relevant to an investigation. And the process has always been that the regulatory agency serves those subpoenas, uh, the recipients of the subpoenas, the people who created the record, the account holder, the sender or recipient of the, of the letter or of the email, goes through all of their files in their possession or control, meaning everything they have locally and anything they have remotely stored. You pull it all together, you cull through it, you determine what's relevant, you make a a production to the government. If the government feels you haven't fully produced, if the government feels you're withholding stuff, the government uh, makes a motion to compel, uh, conducts further inquiry into what kinds of records you might have. They go to additional uh, witnesses or parties in the case, uh, in the investigation, and through that adversarial process, through that um, motion to compel process, the uh, production is defined, the scope of the production is defined, and the person um, is compelled to disclose their own data. And the service provider, the third party, is not in the picture there. The SEC has said, well, we would like to go to that third party. Uh, We would like to go around the user. If we think the user is not fully cooperating with us, as uh, Katie said, if they don't want to go through the effort of fighting it out, as they always had, they want to go to the third party. The third party, of course, the search provider has no ability to know what's privileged and what's not privileged, what's relevant and what's not relevant. Uh, Often here we're talking about personal email accounts, the corporate email accounts, the Leahy-Lee bill, and the uh, Yoder-Polish bill have an exception for corporate email accounts, making it clear that corporate email accounts can be compelled from the corporation. Uh, the business records uh, of the in the possession of the corporation or that the corporation stores with a third party can be compelled through the corporation. But we're, 
particularly where a person has a, a Gmail account and they may have some stuff uh, to their wife in there or the, they may have commingled, that could be a huge amount of data. And it's my view that the SEC and the other regulatory agencies should not have that sort of end run. The SEC can't open um, letters. You know, we've looked at the history, starting with the Postal Service, the telephone, the wireless, uh, now the email, and the civil agencies have never had the ability to open postal mail. The civil agencies, this is the difference between a civil agency and a criminal justice agency. The criminal justice agency, the things that Congress and the state legislatures have said, these are crimes, they carry the criminal powers, opening mail, tapping phones, getting a warrant, going to the person's house, knock, knock, police, open up, we have a warrant, and busting in the door. If the person doesn't open and doesn't cooperate, that's the criminal justice powers. Those have never been held by the civil regulatory agencies. They can't tap phones. They can't get uh, search warrants to enter an office. If it's a criminal violation of the securities laws, the Justice Department and the FBI work together, and the FBI agents can go in. But that's on the criminal side. On the civil side, we have that adversarial process between the regulator and the regulated, and they fight it out over what's relevant and what can be disclosed and what's privileged and what the scope of the inquiry can be. And we think those same rules should apply in the digital world. Search warrant, wiretap, opening email, criminal powers. Subpoena, the motion to compel, that adversarial process between the two parties in the civil side. Um, and I wanted to see if Richard wanted to – do you want to talk a little bit about the distinction? Sure. So uh, as we uh, laid out in some testimony uh, uh, last year, uh, the department has uh, certainly taken a careful look at the uh, ECPA situation and whether warrants should be required for content um, and certainly um, – we appreciate the appeal of an approach uh, and believe that it has considerable merit to move to a warrant system for content, provided that Congress considers some contingencies for certain limited functions for which that warrant requirement across the board would pose a problem. One of the things we pointed out in our testimony is exactly the issue that, uh, that Katie and Jim have been discussing here about civil process and the great basis for that. Um, and we believe that it is important that there be some accommodation, some mechanism uh, that would allow uh, civil investigatory authorities to be able to get uh, the, this information, that there shouldn't be a zone of information that is off limits and impossible to obtain. Now, exactly how that would work is something that we have not taken a firm position on, but that I can imagine ways in which we can satisfy some of these concerns um, and certainly, uh, historically, third-party uh, subpoenas um, are available to get the evidence wherever that information might be obtained, uh, might be located, to banks, to other witnesses who aren't involved in the case, and fully in compliance with the Fourth Amendment when that's happening. So let me give you an example. You're part of an investigative agency investigating a uh, terrible oil spill, so a civil 
environmental violation, or perhaps you're investigating a civil rights violation where uh, a landlord is being accused of racial uh, animus in the use of public housing. What are you going to do? You might issue subpoenas to try to figure out what's happening in the in that situation. Um, most of the time, that person's going to respond to the subpoena. But what about those situations where they won't? And in fact, after they receive the subpoena, might there be some temptation to try to delete out the stuff that's being stored remotely but with the provider? Um, what's going to happen in that situation is that the person denies that it's even their account? Is that just information not available in correcting this very serious situation? Um, whether uh, that could be accomplished through some sort of warrant mechanism would be one thing. But what if the option is given to the individual to come in and contest it so they have all the same rights they would if they received the subpoena themselves, uh, indeed ability to raise issues of privilege or to ask to have other private parts of the email excluded or whatever set of restrictions that you'd like to see, including that the court be able to issue protective orders, perhaps as they do commonly in civil litigation to make sure that there isn't any undue privacy invasion beyond what's required for that civil situation. So uh, the department's position, as stated in the testimony last year, is um, we we think there is considerable merit to a warrant process, but we want to make sure that uh, there are appropriate exceptions in those situations where agencies can't get a warrant. And let me uh, also touch on one thing where it was mentioned there's sharing between civil and criminal. I just want to be very clear that it is uh, not possible to have a civil side case be opened in order to obtain something or vice versa. Civil investigators can't ask that a criminal case be opened in order to do something, nor direct the gathering of evidence on the other side. So uh, that's really not a, a viable solution either. Okay, well, thank you, Richard. I, I think you know, Richard just described maybe some of the limitations of, of a potential workaround. Um, Katie, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I, I have a few comments. Um, so... The thing is, is that this information is not off limits to civil agencies. To say that it's off limits to civil agencies isn't true. Um, they can subpoena me, the person who created the documents. They can subpoena my company. They just can't subpoena a third-party service provider. They need a warrant to do that. So that would be criminal. So they wouldn't be able to go to the third-party service provider, but they would be able to go to me. Now, on the same day that they send me a subpoena for my personal email, they can send a preservation order to the third-party service providers that I'm using. The third-party service providers will hold that information so that they can check, as I said, the send and receive data against what the service providers have. Then they can do a um, an order to compel where I have they think that I haven't shared relevant information and then I would have to share that relevant information or go through other court proceedings, possibly be held in contempt of court. So there is the ability for civil investigative agencies to get to this information and to work with third-party service providers if I, if I, if I don't comply. It just takes more work than if they could just subpoena the third party. So, and the thing about, you know, being able to um, go back and put protection. The, the fact of the matter is the government already has your information. 
So whether I get to declare privilege or protection or whatever, it's already out there. That's already my private information that I haven't been able to sort through first. And if you think nobody's looking at it, I mean, my thought is probably nobody's looking at it, but they still have the ability to have looked at it because it needs to be protected. So even if it's not admissible in a case, someone could have already seen your private stuff. Um, and if you're dealing with a, a civil rights violation, as was mentioned, you can subpoena everybody in the building for their private email. And you can subpoena the landlord. And if the landlord does not agree, there is a procedure to go through in order to get to his mail from the third-party provider, again, by issuing a preservation order. So there are avenues. They just aren't as easy. I mean, I respectfully disagree. Um, it's not a matter of ease or not ease. Um, a preservation order is extremely helpful to make sure that the, the data won't be deleted. But if there's no mechanism to get it at the end of the day, the preservation is not going to be helpful. Secondly, it may well be that the individual does not have access to his own email anymore. Uh, Perhaps the first thing that the landlord does after he's been hit with the subpoena is he goes and deletes his account. Now, the provider may not have deleted it. Maybe it's just deactivated it. Or it may be that the investigator for the government wisely put in a preservation order first. But the, you can't compel someone to give over something that they, in fact, do not have access to any longer. So this is the core of our concern, is that there be a zone, a set of information that wrongdoers can simply put off limits and uh, rely on uh, the law to prevent access to that information. Um, that's why I think in a reasonable accommodation of some sort, an exception to the general warrant rule for this category of information is something that needs to be worked out. But see, we have a, first of all, on the preservation uh, Authority, which is already in the statute, a civil agency or a criminal agency for that matter, but a civil regulatory agency can issue the preservation order. That's like a freeze order, freeze the contents of the account. They basically take it and they put it in a separate little file and keep it there. That can be issued before the subpoenas are issued. That can be issued before the investigation is opened. Um, that can be issued at the earliest stage before the target has any hint that um, they have come within the scope of uh, the government's interest. So you freeze it first, then you issue the subpoena. You then use the subpoena power as well, which, again, the reform proposals would not affect, to get the account identifying information, uh, to identify potentially other accounts that the person might have. And then at the end of the day, as I said, there's this adversarial fight between the two parties, but that's exactly the way it has been for the whole history of the regulatory state. Um, if at the end of that, leave aside the cloud, the person is totally local storage. If the government is not satisfied, the government cannot come into that person's office or apartment. The government cannot serve uh, an order on the landlord to let us in or tell the landlord, go in and get the data because the person, we're not satisfied with the outcome of the judge's order on this. 
Also, by the way, if the person says, well, I forgot my password or I, I can't find the data, he can be ordered to give his consent to the disclosure of it. And consent, remember, is one of the exceptions to the Fourth Amendment and one of the exceptions to ECPA. And the courts have used this, in, including in a recent case involving the FTC, to order the person to consent to the disclosure of the data. Go get Either get your data or tell the service provider. If you say you can't remember your password, just tell the service provider if they can get it without your password, and often they can, tell them to give it over. So, Jim, just to clarify, that's compelled consent? That's what's called compelled consent, which is a little bit of an artificial concept, um, and I don't want to push it too far, but that's one of the sort of, um, I would say, safety valves that are already in the law, which this reform would not change. And again, at the end of the day, we should not be disfavoring the use of the cloud services. We should not be saying that if you take advantage of the flexibility, the low cost, probably better security, the backup, the collaborative possibilities of being able to share documents across a widely dispersed uh, enterprise, to take advantage of all of those benefits of cloud services, you somehow give up your privacy right, and at the end of the day, you are disadvantaged over what would be the case if you had tried to maintain your own data on your own server in, in your own building. Um, we have put forth, uh, Katie and uh, Katie's group, my group, uh, ACLU and uh, Heritage Action for America, wrote to the SEC, and we said we will codify these procedures. We will make it crystal clear and we offered them legislative language. We wrote to them a couple weeks ago. It's now probably going on three weeks. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard back from the SEC yet. Richard, I don't know if that letter wound its way through the system to you or, or not, but we've put forth a proposal that would make it clear that the traditional forms of access are preserved. And this traditional mm-hmm. uh, back and forth, this motion to compel process and the consent would be preserved. Great. Thanks. I uh, I think in the interest of time, I'd love to, before we jump to questions, I just want to ask one more question um, about, because I think it's important to discuss location information. It's uh, It's been the topic of legislation and a lot of discussion lately. Um, as you probably know, the Supreme Court a couple of years ago in, in U.S. v. Jones held unanimously that uh, law enforcement's attachment of a GPS device to a car and the use of that GPS device to monitor someone's activities over a period of time implicated the Fourth Amendment. Um, It's unclear from that decision what that means uh, for the collection of other types of location information, including cell site location information, but I thought it might be helpful to briefly talk about here how law enforcement um, uses ECPAD and, and its investigative tools to obtain that information and then to hear some of the other issues associated with that. Location information is uh, a complex subject which probably could demerit its own hour or two of uh, discussion. So um, I'm going to touch on a few issues, but obviously we're uh, maybe have to uh, schedule another uh, briefing for you for that. 
Um, one point I'd like to make is geolocation information is not one thing. Uh, there's numerous axes on which one can consider information. Some of it's very precise, like the GPS signal coming from your phone that fairly closely pinpoints where you are. And other location information might only tell you what area code you're in or what country you're in. Uh, there is some kinds of information that you voluntarily give out, like when you uh, make a call or if you announce your location to the provider. Other types of information, maybe not. Some information is normally in the routine course of business kept by the provider. Some information is not. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that this is a complex topic and that needs to be treated carefully and consider the different needs both for private for public safety and for uh, privacy and uh, civil liberties. Um, I will say that uh, the, the, the current rules, the way law enforcement uses this information, are, again, fairly complex. But um, if I can give you a couple of waypoints um, to think about this question, uh, I can uh, leave you with that. And I'm happy, of course, to speak further about it as well. Um, but, for example, uh, the not very precise information that identifies which tower your phone has been used to communicate with, for example, might be kept by the uh, – is generally kept by the phone company uh, for roaming and billing and system information. It's not terribly uh, useful for uh, law enforcement but can be – Quite use, it can in certain circumstances be useful sort of to, for example, show that someone was near the scene of a crime and not across town where he, he says his alibi is. Um, that stuff is obtained via a court order at this time by law enforcement. That is, uh, a, an independent magistrate evaluates the, the uh, evidence presented and decides whether to um, issue that order. Um, more precise GPS level information, let's say, where you uh, are interested, let's say, in where a, a kidnapping victim might be and you need precise information and you want to do it on a future ongoing basis, uh, that's generally obtained via a warrant uh, at this time. So uh, same kind of search warrant that we've been discussing for content of other sorts. So that's a very brief primer on the way law enforcement might use information. Um, Happy to take questions if you've got particular things as we go. Just want to give the Jim or Katie a chance to say a word or two before we jump to questions. Yeah. So um, as Richard said, it's a very complicated uh, question. Uh, on this little sheet that's outside on the table, if you didn't pick it up, that has the uh, members of digital due process and the four uh, reform principles of our coalition, uh, number one is the warrant for content, and I've indicated the bill H.R. 1852 there. And then number two is our recommendation that, um, by and large, we move to the warrant standard for uh, cell tower location information. Um, and there are three pending bills on that that uh, I've listed, uh, all of them bipartisan uh, bills, uh, the issue there is that in some cases the cell tower can cover a very, very large area. And in some cases a cell can tower antenna can cover a very small area. 
And what the wireless providers have been doing is they've been getting more and more customers. And, of course, if they've been running ads about who has the fewer dropped calls and who has the more uh, robust network, they've been building more and more and more towers, including towers covering smaller and smaller areas. And so the average cell phone user in the course of a day may move from uh, their house out in uh, Bethesda or the suburbs or in Virginia where the cell tower covers a relatively large area and then come downtown, smaller and smaller, go into an office building perhaps where there's a a tower just for that office building, sometimes just for a floor. Um, I always say GPS, which the government degrees um, requires a, a warrant, uh, my GPS doesn't work in the subway, but my cell phone works in the subway. Well, how is that? That's because the, the cell phone companies have put towers in the subway. They've put little antennas in the subway stations in order to service your uh, cell phone when you're in the subway. Um, so sometimes that data is very, very uh, broad, Sometimes it is very, very specific, and sometimes it locates a person in what is clearly a private space, clearly a protected space in their home, in their apartment, in their office. And since the government is never going to know if they're tracking a person over time, since the government's never going to know how granular that data is going to get, we believe the better approach up front is to get the warrant. The courts are all over the ballpark on this. I would say that for prospective tracking, a majority of the courts have uh, required a warrant. A minority have not. Uh, Different breakdown, uh, just pretty much the opposite. A majority of courts have not required a warrant for stored uh, cell tower data. We say there's really no difference between tracking a person prospectively for 30 days versus going back 30 or 60 or 90 days and finding where they were uh, as they traveled about. Bills were introduced. Um, We support comprehensive uh, ECBA reform, including addressing and clarifying this question of uh, cell site location. I think for this year, none of those bills are uh, moving the bill in the Senate that has been reported out of Judiciary Committee is content only. The bill in the House that has attracted the most attention is content only. I think uh, for this year, if there's one thing that could be done, it would be addressing the content question, which is sort of the glaring uh, deficiency in the statute. Uh, the location data, I think you have to consider what do you do about the so-called uh, one-time pings, or what do you do about the tower dumps where you uh, simply demand the identity of all the cell phones who are in touch with a certain tower at the time of the crime? That poses uh, different issues. It covers very many more people, but it's only a short period of time as opposed to one person tracking them over time. Do we want separate standards for either of those? Uh, that we've, we've, in a way, there have been hearings held on this, but I, I would say we haven't quite uh, dug into the necessary detail on that one, certainly not, in my opinion, in order to get it done this Congress. 
I'm going to leave the location thing with Jim there. Um, I just wanted to make one more comment before we move into open questions. Um, here in the House, electronic communications privacy reform, warrant for content, the Yoder Polis bill, has 200 co-sponsors. It should have more. And I think the House has an opportunity to pass a bill that doesn't name a post office under suspension. I think this is something really powerful because if you are one of the people who wants something done about NSA, if we can't get ECPA done, forget NSA. Forget that. ECPA, this is the low-hanging fruit. If, if your congressman wants to show that he cares about Americans' privacy, he better be on ECPA. And there should be a vote that shows who supports Americans' privacy and who doesn't. There should be a vote on this bill that makes it clear who cares about the Fourth Amendment and who doesn't. Because EPCA is a demonstration of how important privacy is, and it's the first step to strengthening the Fourth Amendment in a digital environment. Well, on that very impassioned note, we'll, <laughs> we'll turn to questions if anyone from the audience has any questions. And if you wouldn't mind coming up to the microphone, please. Thank you. The microphone over here, Sam, if you want to. Uh, I was wondering if you all could comment on the uh, oral arguments on Tuesday in the Supreme Court in the cell phone search cases. Um, and more generally, if you guys have any thoughts on the ability of the courts slash Congress to sort of keep up with the pace of technological change, are we going to be needing an ECPA update every year, every five years, that type of thing? Do you want to say cell phone searches? Uh, no. <laughs> All right. I'll just I mean, uh, the reality is it's an ongoing piece of litigation. Yeah. I can't be yeah. commenting on that. And just to be clear, that's a search of cell phones themselves is a different topic than ECPA, which is covers information stored at the provider rather than on the cell phone itself. Right. So, um, you know, that's almost a traditional Fourth Amendment issue. We have the so-called search incident to arrest exception to the warrant requirement. Um, Generally, when the police are conducting an arrest, that process of arresting a person and the authority that they have to arrest the person uh, based upon their observation, for example, of the person actually committing a crime, that carries with it the authority to search that person for any weapons in order to protect the officers, clearly a paramount uh, interest, and to search for the person who might have any evidence um, on him uh, that he could destroy or that uh, he could throw away during the course of the arrest. And the question that will be argued before the Supreme Court on Tuesday is, does that search incident to arrest exception extend to searches of cell phones and other electronic devices that a person has with them. I'm not sure, um, in your second question, um, you know, sometimes the courts are going to give us the answer and the clarity. Um, Sometimes it's going to be up to Congress. Um, We see constantly going back and forth between Congress and uh, the courts both 
institutions, both bodies of branches of government need to understand the technology, to uh, recognize the way in which it uh, challenges traditional uh, statutes or traditional uh, case law. You know, in terms of updating ECBA, I think certainly if we took care of the warrant issue for content and came up with a uniform rule for content, that would be a durable rule. The current rule is clearly undurable. Everybody sort of admits that. Um, that we could fix. Um, location tracking, I think with more effort, we could fix, and that would be a durable fix. Um, later on down the road, there may be yet new technologies or new ways of accessing information that we don't fully anticipate now. One issue that the courts are, are grappling with and on which there's no pending legislation, and I don't know if it's susceptible to legislation, is the um, issue that was alluded to in the story uh, on the front page of the Washington Post today, which goes to the scope of the warrant. So even if you have a warrant, even if you have, let's say, the, the um, authority to search incident to arrest, the digital environment vastly broadens the scope of that potential search. And nowadays, going to a third-party service provider or even going to a person's uh, handheld device, you can get far, far, far more information than you might have gotten even with a traditional physical world search. And the courts are grappling with this question of how do we narrow the scope of the execution of the warrant in the digital world. There are certain rules applicable to the physical world, but how do we extend them to the digital world, and particularly where you have third-party providers, who bears the burden, the government or the provider or the court ordering the government to act in a certain way, who's responsible for sorting through this vast amount of data, which may include a lot of irrelevant uh, data, personal data, data not um, relevant to the investigation. So there will be a lot of issues that need to be addressed, some of them by the courts, some by Congress. I would just add as a footnote, um, the uh, litigation that was mentioned on the Washington Post, again, I can't talk about it. It's part of ongoing litigation, and so I'm barred from that. However, uh, there is a public filing of our brief in the case, and I actually brought a few copies of it. If anybody's interested, I'm happy to provide it to you. It's probably in Ray something. It has. It will probably have not a person's name on it. It's a yeah. In the matter of the search of information related to redacted, <laughs> uh, it's a it's, it's an a, application it's an to a sealed matter. So, um, uh, but anyway, I can show you the case. In fact, I'm not even 100 percent sure what the underlying matter is. The issue is not is about the collection of evidence more than it is about the substance of the crime itself. Sure. If you wouldn't mind coming up to the mic, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, uh, Jim, you were sort of describing sort of a... This one, is the mic on? It is. Yeah. It is? Okay. It is. Sorry. Uh, you were describing how uh, the SEC has been willing or it seems unwilling to uh, find a compromise. And I get a sense that listening to Richard, that that's sort of an attitude that is a little different from, I mean, you may or may not agree with where Richard would want to draw the line, but at least I, I was sort of hearing Richard being able to find a line to draw somewhere rather than 
you're just going to have to give those civil uh, investigation agencies uh, a carve-out. Is that an accurate dis- uh, characterization of sort of uh, <coughs> the attitude of the parties, so to speak, in, in this negotiation? And uh, um, given that uh, we're talking about the SEC, but I imagine this is applicable to all of the other civil investigation agencies, including everyone's favorite, certainly Katie's favorite, the IRS, um, sort of the, the how consequential this is that the SEC isn't willing to, it seems, play ball. Yeah, uh, that's a good point that clearly we talk about the SEC and they've been, uh, in a way, leading the charge against uh, ECBA reform. But um, what they're asking for would extend to all uh, regulatory agencies, not only at the federal level, but at the state and even local level. And a little bit, I feel like we've been talking past each other with them because they keep arguing, the regulatory agencies keep arguing that they will be losing something if the warrant requirement is codified in law. And we're saying you never really had access to data in the cloud. Um, the cloud didn't exist really until five or six or seven years ago. Um, regulatory agencies have done their work with the subpoena power, the motion to compel, the consent process, the preservation order, the subpoena access to the subscriber identifying information, All of those tools remain available to them if this reform is enacted. And they would not be precluded from getting anything. Nothing would be off limits. There would be no uh, park your data here and avoid uh, compliance with the law. It's simply a question of what does it take for the government to get it and would the civil agencies have a wiretapping type power a search and seizure type power, which they've never had. So we're trying to make the bill as clear as possible to say there would be no curtailment of the traditional powers to get data. You're not going to get the extraordinary power to seize data. That's a criminal justice power, not a civil power. You will not get that extraordinary power but you can still have the traditional means of getting access to data. So nothing would be off limits. It's a question of burden of proof and that sort of tug of war that characterizes the civil process. That's, it's a, that's why it's the civil process, not the police process where people have guns and a seizure power, um, which is what we reserve for the criminal side of the government. So we are, uh, I want to give Richard a, a chance to follow up, but we're running out of time after that, but I'll well, give, no, 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 I'll give Richard. I, uh, I would just respectfully disagree about this idea that they have not had that power. Under existing law in ECPA, and has been true for 20 years, subpoena authority is available for information stored in the cloud. That's the whole point of making a change is to, uh, reverse the fact that it is, in fact, the law and has been for, I don't know, 25 years. So I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. I want to thank the Congressional Internet Caucus and, in particular, Congressman Goodlatte, Congresswoman Eshoo, and Senators Thune and Leahy. 
uh, and Tim Lorden uh, for his leadership. Um, so thank you all, and thanks to the panelists for providing an excellent discussion today.